Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm very, very happy to be joined by Mark Hyde, who we've been trying to coordinate our schedule since September of last year. I checked the email thread, and we've been trying to get this done for a long time. It's finally happening. So I'm so grateful, Mark, that you've been able to make some time to come on this little podcast and share your stories of Salt Lake 2002. Welcome. How's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. I'll blame COVID for the scheduling issues, even though that's probably not really what caused it. Well, COVID is actually one of the reasons we're actually doing this podcast. I was sitting around at home with not much to do, thinking to myself, what should I do? And uh, I thought of this crazy podcast. I'd actually been thinking about it for a while, but COVID gave me the time and the bandwidth to do it. So yeah, we can blame COVID and we can also give it some credit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days, what you're up to? So uh, since uh, the Olympics, I've gone to PA school. We've got a master's degree in medicine and have been working uh, throughout Utah, but mostly with the Huntsman Cancer Institute uh, treating skin cancer. Then a few years ago, I got a doctorate degree in public health, and I'm also now working with Utah Valley University, helping them create a PA program. Oh, my goodness. You're incredibly accomplished and very, very busy, it sounds like. Uh, yes, it's uh, yes on busy. Well, the incredibly accomplished is yet to be determined. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be your legacy. Well, how has COVID impacted the work that you're doing there with UVU? and also with Huntsman Cancer and the notion of physical therapy? Well, so it's um, a physician assistant, not physical therapy. Oh, sorry. It's okay. You said, you said PA. PA, yeah. P yeah. And, uh, you know, the patient care has been impacted in a number of ways. When this first hit, my, my skin cancer clinic completely shut down for about six weeks and then opened back up. And then in um, December, I actually switched over away from doing the skin cancer altogether to do an urgent care because that's where the need was. So that's been a big change with UVU where I'm just, where I'm helping to create a program. Um, the big thing is we're, we're just not there in person. Like we were, you know, the faculty is working remotely. And so it's a little different trying to stay connected um, when you're not physically in the same space. Uh, totally understand. Well, it's been a challenge for everybody and I'm, so grateful to people like you who are willing to kind of just jump in and do whatever was needed to be done to get us through these crazy times. And hopefully they will end shortly. We can get these vaccines and, and uh, hopefully move on. I think we're on a good, good trajectory right now. Well, at least here in the state of Utah, it seems like we're, we're on a pretty good path. Yeah. Yep. I agree. All right. Well, Anything else you want to tell us about what you're working on currently and your current situation before we dive into our crazy trivia question? No, I think, you know, personal life stuff. I've got a son that's getting uh, getting ready to go to the Ivory Coast speaking French. And so what we've been doing, you know, my, my role with the Olympics involved languages um, and I speak Russian. And so I've, I've been diving back into Russian while he's been diving into French, trying to freshen up on, on Russian. So that's another COVID uh, time spender. Oh my gosh, that's got to be incredibly exciting. And also the same yeah, time, maybe a little bit scary uh, sending, sending your son off to Africa. It's been, it's been all of those things, an emotional roller coaster for sure. 
Yeah, not too many years ago, we sent our son to Uganda uh, and Ethiopia oh, yeah. <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. And uh, it's yeah. not easy. It's not easy. Yeah. All right. Well, that's super exciting. Let's talk about being marooned on an island. All right. Hopefully it's nice and warm. Yeah, well, warm enough. But I'm a skin cancer guy, so i got to make sure I've got all kinds of clothing and sunscreen. Okay, so we'll make sure you've got all the appropriate protections and SPF yeah. lotions and all that kind of stuff there. So you're safely marooned for a limited period of time. You will eventually be rescued. You're not going to wither and die there. But if you're there and you have limited entertainment and food options, what would they be? Let's talk about meals, film, and music. We can start with the meals first. So meals, you know, the hard thing about this is that if if I have a choice uh, you know, you go to dinner, you go to a restaurant. I always dive into the menu and look for the seafood. I'm a huge seafood fan. I love scallops. I love crab. I love uh, tuna fish. So it's a funny thing, you know, hopefully on that, that island, there's plenty of crab and I would be just in hog heaven. That's it. I just give me crab. So it'd be locally sourced crab there on the island. Yep, you can exactly. <laughs> you can yep. walk over to the shoreline and you can find, fetch yourself some crab and have a nice meal. Yeah, I worry that the only the only downside of that is after some time I may not like crab like I do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you can have too much of a good thing every once in a while, right? Yeah, and it's and there there it'd be hard if there's no good butter too. So we need a little good butter with the crab. All right. So you've got to have the fixings to go along with it. What would you typically have with your crab besides the butter? Well, I mean, I could I could really just sit and eat crab dipped in butter. I could do that all day long. But, you know, good green vegetables are always a nice um, added benefit. All right. Crab and vegetables. Maybe you can find those on the island as well. Yeah, I'm sure. Coconuts or something, right? Yeah. Perhaps not as easy to find on the island would be uh, film. So if you had a movie that you could watch, what would the movie be? So I'm a little bit of a um, sci-fi or, or a fantasy geek, and I'm all about Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. I, I love those stories. Yeah, that's, that's a, that would be a lot of entertainment. Yeah, especially if you get the extended editions, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Very long time. I think that's an excellent choice. Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, that's good. Uh, what would your music choice be then? It's, this is one that I, I've been ridiculed my whole life for my music taste, and it's mostly country music. I'm pretty good with most anything except for rap. I don't love rap. But um, from from the time I was relatively young, I always remember listening to Garth Brooks. So I'd probably take Garth Brooks' original album with me. All right, Garth Brooks it is. Uh, I think those are all fine choices. All right. Enough of our fun little game. Let's talk about Salt Lake 2002. If we wind the clock back 20 plus years, what were you doing before you joined the organizing committee? And how did you find your way to Slock? Yeah, so I had a, um, a pretty cool experience with that. I, I um, served a mission, spoke Russian um, in the late 90s. Right after the fall of the Soviet Union, I went into the Baltic states and spent two years there and spoke Russian and Latvian. And then of course, um, I, sir, I spent time in Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, but I didn't speak all of the languages, just Latvian and Russian. So when I, when I came home, I, and, and SLOC was, you know, the organized committee was getting ready, asking for volunteers, I signed up. And I pretty quickly got a phone call and just serendipitously, uh, um, the world championship for sledge hockey, which is uh, athletes that are, have 
uh, impairments walking was coming to Salt Lake. And the, one of the, the competing teams was an Estonian team. And they didn't have, you know, the organizing committee didn't have anybody that knew Estonian. And so they had me, they called me up and said, we saw that you lived in Estonia. And I said, well, I'm happy to help. I don't speak Estonian, but it worked out great. And I spent the, about a week with the Estonian sledge hockey team in like the late 90s, 98, I think. And then uh, the same time I was going to University of Utah, working on a degree in international relations and working as a firefighter, full-time, or not full-time, firefighter, part-time and student full-time. So that happened uh, with the sledge hockey championship. And then a, a year or two later, um, I had had a good experience with the sledge hockey uh, tournament and they, they had a good experience with me. So they called me again for the, um, the Paralympic biathlon. So the world championship of biathlon for athletes with visual impairments. And uh, it was spectacular. We, we were up at Soldier Hollow. Um, just witnessing these athletes do things that most of us can't do with with perfect vision, and they had less than perfect vision. So it was really an amazing experience. And after that event, um, Maureen, I'm I'm going to omit last names for the most part because it may be safer that way. And to be honest, the real reason is I can't, can't remember all of them. So Maureen was the the manager over international client services that sort of coordinated those events and she pulled me aside and said, Hey, we're, we're really excited with the work you've done and we'd like you to come work with, work with us full time. And so I got offered a full-time position to come in and work with them. That's fantastic. Well, when was that? So you started in 1998, then you did the soldier hollow thing. So when did you actually join the committee as a member of the staff? So 98 was the, uh, sledge hockey. I think 2000 was the, the biathlon. And then it was, it wasn't until about like later in 2001 that I actually came on full time. So they offered me, it was a long wait from the time she offered me the position until I started, but that was sort of the plan. It was about six months before the opening ceremonies that I came on full time. All right. That's fantastic. And what was the role that you played? What, what did Maureen have you doing? So my title was International Client Service Venue Manager for soldier hollow. So there were, there was one, um, ICS in international client services, ICS venue manager at each of the venues. So that, I think that's like 15 or something. Cause we had, you know, the media center and other places, but my, my assignment was to manage that at soldier hollow and international client services manages, uh, flags, languages, um, and the Olympic family. So you've got these three different responsibilities. You've got the flags that, that are put up at the venue and you've got the, the Olympic family that arrives at the venue. So you've got to handle the protocol for, for all of those people. And then you're handling the language services as well. Is that how I understood it? Yes, that's exactly right. All right. So, you know, coming in six months before the games, that's not a lot of time uh, to prepare to get acclimated. So how did you, how did you, uh, quickly fit in to the role that you had to play? Well, the committee, you know, they'd done a great job that when I walked in, they had a, a, a uh, one of our colleagues that really managed the flags. I, I wish I could remember his name, I can see his face, but 
the guy was unbelievable with flags. He knew every flag. He knew the right, you know, it's funny. You don't think about what's the right, what's top and bottom. If you see a flag with three stripes, can you orient the flag correctly? He knew everything about flags, how to display them, what they, it was amazing. So he was, he was ready with the flags, which I think that honestly would have been the hardest thing to learn is all the flags, but he was ready for us. So he was available and coached us through that for the, for the whole time. Um, one of my big tasks was really to build the team of interpreters for the venue. We soldier hollow. We had 26 interpreters that we had to recruit and train. And so that became really the lion's share of the work that I had to do was just was find those people. And they had already done the research with the sports. They knew the different languages that would be net would be needed. And so they gave me a list. Say you'll need this many Russian speakers, French speakers, German speakers, and and so on. And so we got all the languages set up and then started recruiting volunteers. And it was it was really cool how many tens of thousands of people had volunteered. And so we were able to sift through and find the right people. Well, that's one of the benefits of hosting a games in Utah is you do have, I mean, you're, you're an example of it, right? Uh, here you come in speaking Russian and Latvian and, uh, it might be a little bit easier to find people that speak all of these yeah, languages right. here than it could right. be in potentially other places. For sure. Okay. Well, I gave you those points ahead of time and I know you've thought about it a little bit. You've probably got some stories on your list that you want to share and, and I want to get to those. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, coming into the team? Uh, clearly you couldn't do it by yourself. You had the flag expert guy. I don't know if that was Todd. Uh, no, it was Todd. Todd Dennett was the flag guy. Yes. Uh, yeah. Thanks. I, Thanks Actually, for remembering. Uh, well, I did this, you know, Maureen and I talk often and uh, Todd's company has, I do a lot of work with the IOC still, and they provide a lot of language services for the work that I've been doing. Uh, so Todd's been very, very helpful uh, in that respect. And I haven't got him on this podcast yet. I need to get Todd on here. But yeah, Maureen is, his, his Maureen knowledge is, is amazing. I, I watched the series Amazing Race. I don't know if you ever watched Amazing Race yep. and they go around the world and and sometimes they have these flag challenges like, OK, you have to put identify the flags of the countries that you visited and put them in the order that you visited them. And that always seems to be a really, really difficult exercise. I don't think I could do it personally. So kudos to having Todd <laughs> helping you yeah. out with the flags. Yeah, he was amazing. So tell us what it was like leading up to the games. Then you you come into this, you're you're firefighter part time, you're a student. And then all of a sudden you're a venue manager. What's that like? It was, um, I mean, honestly, it was, it was a little bit of a dream, right? Sort of wake up every morning and pinch myself and think, is this real? I mean, I remember we were in the, is it the Wells Fargo building down on our main street that we were stationed at for the, until we went to our venues. And I still remember walking into that building and the smell of that building, sort of a, almost a swimming pool type uh, smell. There was a unique smell that I remember the smell. I was, you know, we were on the 13th floor. I, that was when I always thought it was funny. Most a lot of buildings don't have a 13th floor, but we were the 13th floor and uh, working with all of these other venue managers, all very spectacular people um, from all over the world. You know, really cool people from all over the world that were uh, some of them more established in in the profession of, you know, sport and event planning. Others like me really new to the, the world. So it was it was unreal to come in and meet all these cool people, interact with them, um, and that was just my team. 
right? That was just the the venue, the Inter- International Client Services Group. Uh, and then you start branching out and start working with sport groups and, the, you know, all the different, the medical groups and just so many cool people that, that are like-minded. So it was a neat place, neat, neat opportunity. And then um, the process of gathering, you know, recruiting, training, the volunteers that were all the language speakers were, was uh, the highlight for me. The really, you know, we talk about stories that we'll, that we'll share later. Um, for me, a lot of them have to do with the volunteers that I got to be close with and got to know and be friends with, not as much with the sport and the sports was spectacular. The competition was amazing, but those relationships that I developed were, were on, they were just, you know, those were priceless. I think many of the people that we've had on this podcast, they share that feeling, they share that sentiment that really, in the end, it's about the relationships and people have forged relationships that continue to this day. And it's a it's a beautiful outcome. I think it's a wonderful legacy of the games, the human legacy of relationships that came as a result of hosting the games here. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. So you mentioned that you've got your international client services team. You're there on the 13th floor. I happen to sit on the 13th floor as well, just outside of Ed Einan's office. That's where I was sitting. Yeah. And so the 13th floor was a very, very fun place. But in addition to this international client services team you had, you also had your venue team, the Soldier Hollow venue team that you had yeah. to become familiar with. And, and so what was that process like becoming a part of a venue team? That was a little, honestly, I remember that being a little more scary, you know, that's a bigger group and they were, um, Phil was the, the overall venue manager and, and Phil was really great mentor. He was very kind to me, um, encouraging, worked with me well, but you know, the, we had to work closely with the medical group cause we were working also with the, with languages we're doing the, we had to help with doping and with medical, we had to do with the press group. Um, so it was, it was a little bit of one of those imposter syndrome times in my life where you sort of sit in those groups and in those meetings, you know, each week and, you know, the whole venue team together and you you sit there and look around and think, when are they going to figure out that I don't really belong? (laughs) Because they're all just amazing people. But, you know, in the end to it, I'm sure that we all felt the same way, just, just completely privileged to be involved in the way that we were. Well, Soldier Hollow sounds, by all accounts, to be a really, really fun venue. We've had Phil on. I don't know if you've heard his episode. I'll have to go listen to that. I haven't heard his. Yeah, so we've had Phil on. We, we've we had uh, Carl uh, Schwallow, the, the food and beverage guy out there at Soldier Hollow. We've had a couple of the commentators, Peter Graves and Chad Salmela. Yeah, I remember uh, Chad well. And they all tell about, it's really it was really, really a terrific venue for spectators, a tricky venue for operations. And uh, I'm so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. So on the one hand, you had the spectator experience, which you had some part to play in uh, being responsible for the games family, the Olympic family. But then you had all this back of house operations that that uh, in some respects was a bit challenging just due to the to the layout of the venue. Yeah. Um, so, there, you know, we had an opportunity with the International Client Service Group, had an opportunity to go see a few other venues. We went up with um, Mike Caldwell. I don't know if you've had Mike on yet, but he would be a good one. But 
uh, we, we went up to the Ogden ice sheet and we curled and we went out to the oval and, and we didn't skate, but we watched it, but I didn't have a lot of opportunity to really see all the other venues. And so I'm limited in my knowledge of how soldier hollow differed from everything else, but I will tell you, let me, let me share a story. It'll, it's one of my, one of my favorite stories from the games was, um, and this illustrates what you're talking about, that the course uh, was huge. It was a huge race course, you know, just 50 kilometers of, of, of trails all over, you know, or hundreds of kilometers. I don't know how many kilometers, but massive course. And the uh, finish line and the press box and the stands and everything were down at the bottom of a bluff. And it was, it needed to be that way because the biathlon range needed to back a bluff or needed to back a solid, a solid structure of some kind to protect people. So you had to go down this, this immense hill to get to the, the main part of the venue, but all of our operation stuff were up on top of that bluff. So my, the Olympic family lounge, which was one of my responsibilities was up there, medical tents, the wax cabins for all the teams were up there. And at the, the 50 kilometer race, the, um, the, my Russian interpreters were all out. I didn't do much interpreting during the games because I was the venue manager for the interpreters. So I really stayed in the back, but my Russian interpreters were all out and unexpectedly a Russian won the 50 kilometer. No, he got silver in the 50 kilometer. He, he barely, he barely got beat out. Um, not by much. And, and I, so we didn't have anybody and they're calling me saying, Hey, you've got to, you need to have a Russian interpreter here. And that's a, you know, that's, it's really important because of the doping control and all the things that happen at the end of a race that you have an interpreter for that athlete to make sure that nothing is done inappropriately and in any way compromises the integrity of the sport. So I ran down to the finish line and as this, this Russian athlete came across in second place and he was ecstatic to have got second place, got a silver. He wasn't, he didn't, you know, he wasn't expected to do that well. And the Russians, the Russian team wasn't expected to, to be on the podium. So him finishing in, in second place was, was just amazing. And ironically, the guy that won was so exhausted. He was laying on the ground just past the finish line and the medical team were helping him recuperate. This Russian athlete was so excited. He was bouncing around and he turned to me and he said, how much time do I have? And I, so I, I asked his, his, the doping agent that was assigned to us, the group of three of us. And she said, we've got about 15 minutes before we need to report for the, for the doping control. And so I told him, may I have 15 minutes, man, that guy, he just skied 50 K in an the Olympic sport, one silver dropped everything and ran all the way up that bluff. And me and the, you know, it's, we have to stay with him. We have to stay. So this guy ran to his wax cabin all the way up at the top of the hill. And it was, it was a normal, a normal circumstance. It was quite a walk. You know, it was a walk that winded me going up and down that hill. Man, that guy ran it and I had to stay up with him and the doping um, representative had to stay up with him. And we ran all the way up to that wax cabin and we were dead. And that guy was bouncing all over. He was so excited. And so that it illustrates a little bit of this this complication of the logistics or the layout of Soldier Hollow, where it was incredibly hilly terrain, and you had to have that shooting range in the right spot, and you had to have the stadium in a spot where people could get to it, and and so this this having to run up and down that hill all the time was was um, was good for my health.
yeah, you probably ended up with calves and quads of steel uh, by the time you were done there at Soldier Hollow. For a few weeks anyway. <laughs> you know, well, aside- just uh, sorry, the, the cool wrap ahead. up on that story. Um, I, if I understand, if I remember correctly, that Russian athlete ended up being uh, granted, being given the gold medal a couple of weeks later due on a, a technical issue or something for the winner. And so he ended up with the gold. So aside so from cool. following him up the hill, um, did you actually have to do some interpreting for him? Yeah, I mean, it, it was with him. You know, the nice thing was it was it was mainly just trying to make sure that he understood what he could and could not do. Because at the period after the race for the top four finishers, that they have to follow some pretty strict guidelines to make sure that they're cleared and that everything's done correctly. And so most of it was just him asking me questions about you know, what's my, what time do I have? What can I drink? Where can I get some food? They, you know, they, they weren't supposed to be drinking or eating anything that was not provided by anybody other than the doping control people so that they couldn't have an accidental ingestion of something. So it was mostly just, um, small talk. Um, but you know, we went to the wax cabin where his coaches and a couple other teammates were waiting and we sat there and listened to them, you know, celebrate this, this guy's silver medal, soon to be gold. And um, I talked to a few of the, you know, quick questions with the media, but but not much more than that. Uh, that's a fantastic story. I'm curious, uh, generally speaking, what was, you know, aside from running up and down a hill all the time, what was a typical day in the life like for you during the games uh, managing the international client services at Soldier Hollow? Man, every day was every day was different. But but, you know, generally we we had a really great um this lock was very good. They had a place for all of the venue management type uh, people to stay. There was a condo over in Midway that, man, I think it slept probably 15 or 20, but at any given time, I don't have any idea how many people really slept there and nobody kept any schedules that were normal. And so I remember I would, um, I would get up at um, four or five in the morning um, to head over to the venue. And I was usually the last one out by an hour or two. Everybody else was, and I was the late sleeper. So I'd head over to the venue and it wasn't too far of a drive. Um, I drove over, there was the, the tent where you had to go through security check and they would check your vehicle pretty thoroughly, check you thoroughly before you could drive into the venue. And then I go in, um, the, the center of my operations was the Olympic family lounge. So we had the Olympic family lounge and that's where the, there was a, a space for the Olympic family to come in and warm up, get some food, uh, have a nice, you know, nice place to where they could watch different feeds from the games that were going on. But then also there was a little section, a couple little areas cordoned off within the, the Olympic family lounge for my space to work. And then the interpreters and, um, the hosts we had, we had some people that, we're not official interpreters, but because of the language skills worked in this, in my um, area, just to help with the Olympic family and host people. So we all had our little space there. So I'd go into the Olympic family lounge first thing, make sure everything was set up. Our foods folks would have um, their people come in and we'd get our food ready to go for the day and go down, uh, make sure my interpreters were ready and that we knew which races and flags and whether we were ready with all the different technicalities and, and specifications that needed to go into that medical folks, make sure that we touch base and the doping control that, that are, we had our interpreters lined up for them. Um, you know, one of the, one of the fun memories, um, Dave was one of it within my team. I had a couple, I was the man, the manager and a couple supervisors. 
And Dave was one of the supervisors that worked um, underneath me and helped manage all of what we were doing. And Dave was, Dave had a nose for food. And one of the cool things about Soldier Hollow that, that was unique and amazing was the Western experience where the, you know, the Midway and, and the, the Wasatch County folks did an amazing job of helping us set up a Western experience for people coming from all over the world to see a little bit more about our, you know, their culture had chuck wagon food, um, hot Dutch ovens. They had sort of the mountain man type experience going. And Dave was one of my supervisors. So it seemed like every morning I could, I could reliably find Dave at the Western experience, testing the food from the next or new uh, Dutch oven meal that was coming out. So usually, you know, day in the life of the experience, we, we'd head down to the Western experience and see what kind of good eats we could find. And that was a day was a spectacular um, person with people and, and just just made people comfortable. So he, he got to know almost everybody on that venue. Um, and then, you know, then this, the events would happen for the day and it would get pretty hectic while the, the races were going and we were trying to get interpreters where they needed to be. You know, we had, we had the predictable things where we had press conferences and we had the, the races. And then we had the unpredictable where we, we had medical emergencies or Olympic family showing up that we weren't expecting. We tried to keep a tab. You know, we'd know who was going to be coming from the Olympic family so that we could be ready for them. But there were times where we were not warned and somebody would show up and we just had to adjust on the fly. But that was a really I mean, honestly, amazing experience to see the different groups coming through. And I think most of most of the people that worked with with the organizing committee know what the Olympic family is. But I think outside the Olympics world, nobody, everybody thinks, you know, I remember when I started, I thought, well, Olympic family, is that like the uh, families of the athletes or, or who is that? So it was, you know, we had we had the IOC, the, you know, the uh, head of state from different countries. We had royal families. I remember that during the 2002 Olympics, one of the British royal family died. I can't remember which one it was. And we had some of the British royal family in my venue, in my lounge when that was, when they were notified and they had to sort of emergency evacuate, so to speak, they had to get back. So it was, it was pretty amazing to, to see that stuff happening real firsthand. That's awesome. You mentioned there's the the expected things and the unexpected things. The the situation there with the British royals that was an unexpected situation. Uh, any other interesting unexpected situations arrive while you were working there that you care to share with us today? Well, unexpected. I had so I had a cool opportunity with NPR to they they called me and just out of the blue. I don't know if Phil put them on to me or somebody, but they they came and um, interviewed me. Um, and, and funny thing is I never heard the interview, so I don't know if it actually aired or if the, it just didn't make the cut. So, but it was cool to, to interview with NPR. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the, the parts being a venue manager, one of the things that we all got to do, all of the international client service venue managers got pulled in to the opening and closing ceremonies. And so I'll tell you that was that whole thing was unexpected. You know, every every person we I actually worked the red carpet at the opening ceremonies. So I, I was standing as these these buses would pull up because they didn't, you know it wasn't limos or anything because they didn't have individual vehicles. 
but I would stand as a bus would pull up and that bus would be loaded with people that are more famous than I could ever imagine. And they'd step off and I would help them. Uh, you know, most of the time I just stood aside cause they could follow the carpet, but a number of times they needed, they had questions and I was able to um, give them directions. I met Angelina Jolie. I met a lot of the local dignitaries from Utah, um, Jacques Rogue and, and Mitt Romney, of course, when they, came through, but just a, just a number of people. And then the presidential reception happened while I was manning that station. And so, um, president Bush came through and his, he, I got assigned my own secret service agent for about an hour at that time. So that was pretty interesting. That was way unexpected to have an, a secret service agent connected to me. That is super cool. That is super cool. Uh, what else have you got on your list? Well, I think, you know, um, I think that, not stories, but there were, well, I guess there are stories. I, I will say that uh, I worked with, um, I will share a last name on this one. Tom and Linda Whitaker were uh, residents up there in, they still are residents up there in Midway. And um, they, they rolled out the, the red carpet for me. Like I couldn't believe they were so gracious. And they, uh, they in Midway had a crush exhibit that was going on just before the games and they invited me up and they had a, a sleigh pulled by a horse and they, they got me in the sleigh and they pulled me around and took me to the crush exhibit. And I, I just think that that's, and I, I hate just mentioning Tom and Linda because I think there were so many people that just opened up the community in a way that was unbelievable. So I, you know, it was a shout out to the, to the community up there in Midway. I had a great opportunity to meet um, my German interpreters were Hans and Inga. And they were, a, they were a mature couple. I'm not going to say older. They'd be angry at me. Um, but Hans and Inga were my inger- German interpreters. And I, my wife came up one night to the venue. And so they, they, were, um, they let us stay with them. And in the morning, this is going to embarrass Inga. I hope she doesn't mind that I'm sharing this. But in the morning, they served us this really amazing breakfast with a, you know, I had a big full glass of milk sitting in front of me and I took a big swig on that milk and it was so rotten. <laughs> and Inga for the rest, I mean, every time I saw her still, it's, it's, that's the, thing. I'm so sorry about, and I think for me, that's actually one of the, I loved it. I think it's great, you know, and it was nice to eat away from the venue, even though the food at the venue was, was well done. I had a, I think it was a spinach succotash at the venue, which I would never, ever eat outside that I really enjoyed. So anyway, um, you know, the good story, I think I'll close with one more story. I'll end with this story because this is, I think, one of the, the sort of illustrates the whole spirit of the Olympics that, you know, these people doing amazing things, athletes doing amazing things, volunteers doing amazing things, SLOC staff doing amazing things, but we had a an opportunity with one of the cool opportunities is as these athletes would win gold or, or win medals and be requested for a press conference. Our interpreters got to go sit with them and, and be right there in that press conference. And I think it was Hans that I was talking about earlier that was the interpreter on this situation, but he was sitting on the, he was sitting on, on the media stand with this athlete that had just won gold and the athlete was from Europe 
And so, at, you know, the time that this had just happened, Europe's asleep. Nobody's really awake over there. And somebody that knew the athlete got the athlete's mom out of bed and on the phone and handed the phone to the athlete. And the athlete just started sobbing to, and was able to tell his mom that he just won gold. And, you know, to me, we watch it all the time and winning gold's a great thing, but that, that experience watching, listening, hearing about that story of this athlete and how, how much it meant to him and imagining his mom in the middle of the night, getting that phone call that we all dread because the night phone calls are usually not good things. And then hearing that her son had just won the gold medal. It was, it was amazing. And he was so, so excited, almost overwhelmed that he had won. It was a life-changing experience. So, so it was a life-changing experience for me. And it was a life-changing experience for my interpreter that was running the, the event, that, that press conference. So those were the experiences that were just amazing. I really appreciate you sharing that. It's a beautiful reminder that at the end of the day, these incredible athletes are also human beings. They're people. And the things that motivate them are in many ways the same things that motivate us. And it's a desire to share the things that matter to us with the people that matter to us. And so I really appreciate you sharing that memory. A few moments ago, you talked about the Paralympic uh, test event that you participated in and there were Paralympic events there and those athletes were incredible athletes. And so I'm wondering if you can just tell us a little bit about the, the follow-up to the Olympic games, the Paralympic games that were, that were held there and what it was like working those Paralympic games. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that up and, and maybe more, I feel bad that we're only going to spend a little bit of time on it because, because certainly more um, inspirational to watch the Paralympic athletes doing things that are just unreal. I mean, biathlon, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're skiing around a course, you're getting incredibly winded and then you're shooting at targets from 50 meters or how I think it's 50 meters and having to hit a target the size of a quarter. Um, and, and then getting up and doing it again and having to do it. It's, it's amazing to watch. I also, um, I've, I've reflected, uh, a, a lot on watching that event or watching those events during the Paralympics. And I'll never, um, I'll, I'll never take for granted the, the blessings I have, but I'll also never look at, uh, you know, a person that has a disability in the same way, because I've seen how well they can do. It's amazing that they can do things I could never do. I loved watching the companionship between um, the visually impaired athletes. So the athletes with visual impairments and their guides um, watching them ski a course that I might, I've skied the course a few times and it's hard. And then I watch these guys do it. They're not, they're not able to see, but they've got a guide in front of them that's calling in a cadence and in a communication form that for them, it's, it's perfect. It's, it's simple. It's, you know, perfect synchrony. It's perfect harmony. They're these two athletes, you know, and the guides pulling the guides, helping this, this athlete that can't see as well, get around the course. There's nothing like that, you know, and <clears throat> there was, it was a little, you know, just like it always is the Paralympics did not pull quite the crowds or the attention 
Um, but, but it was amazing, equally inspiring, equally fun. I got a little bit more involvement with the Paralympics because the other thing that happened during the Paralympics is because there were fewer crowds and it was a little less intense with the logistics. Um, I was, I was more involved in the, uh, presentation, you know, the, the presentation of medals actually happened at the venue or, you know, they did flowers and medals. And so it was a lot more uh, involved in some of those things. Got to talk with a lot of the different athletes. It was, it was inspiring. It was incredible. Well, it sounds amazing. And that amazing chapter has an ending. <laughs> the games end and this really crazy six or seven or eight months of your life, it ends. And then you go on to do different things. I'm curious about this pivot. You, you were in this international relations space and then you decide, okay, I'm going to go do the, the physician's assistant route, uh, how that came about. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that and then maybe wrap us up with some of the things that you learned there working in Salt Lake or in other places that you think could be um, enlightening or helpful to others? Yeah, that's, um, it's a <laughs> question that I ask myself sometimes, right? That how, how it's, it's just fascinating. If you look back I the path that I have traveled, I feel like I chose those, those paths. But when I look back, it feels like it chose me that things just happened. And so <clears throat> during the, you know, leading up to the Olympics, I was working as a firefighter and going to school. And um, I also worked in the hospitals there at the University of Utah while I was getting my degree. Um, so I got my degree in in a political science and focused on international relations. I focused on Eastern European politics um, and then worked that, that happened. I got the degree in August right as I started to work for SLOC. And then I worked through the Olympics and um just on a whim, I'd, I'd worked with a number of things and I was sitting at, you know, just on a whim right before the Olympics, I applied to PA school. Thought that might be a fun career path. But then during the Olympics, I had a number of opportunities presented. I know that um, FIFA was doing World Cup Tokyo or World Cup Japan, Korea, um, right after six months or whatever after the Olympics. And so they were um, interested in recruiting some of the people from Salt Lake Organizing Committee to go help, you know, do a similar thing there. So that was something that I looked at. And I also had, because of the um, the connection with the Olympic family and these international dignitaries and, and uh, public officials coming through, I had um, connections with the Secret Service and the Department of State, the people that were talking to me. And one of the, the, one of the agents from the Department of State that was a dignitary um, assigned to dignitaries to protect them. And while they were in the United States, he, he sort of recruited me to go work for the, um, you know, work for the department of state and, and do this job that he was doing. And that was fascinating. <clears throat> so as the Olymp Olympics wrapped up, I sort of had that, I was sort of sitting at that crossroads with a number of different possibilities in front of me. Um, but you know, the, the one sure thing that was sitting in front of me was I had been accepted to PA school in Arizona and my wife was pregnant with our first. And so I looked at the potential paths that might go from that spot. And I figured, I just decided that I love medicine. I'd been doing some of it for a while and it probably offered the most stable, um, family life for my wife and my son. And so I, I jumped on board there.
that's a it's great to have options, right? <laughs> it's great to be in a position it was, it was like, you know what? It was such I've, a good I've time. Got a, I've got a range of really nice choices here. And uh, you ended up making a choice that was that was great for you and for your family as well. So well done. Yeah, it's been it's all been good. I don't look back with regrets. I look back with gratitude at all the cool experiences that I've had with all the different things that I've been able to do. And so to recap those experiences uh, with my final question, once again, what were some of the things that you learned along the way that have helped you throughout your career and your life? So um, maybe, you know, some of the things that I think about from our conversation is that you get to that point, you get to multiple points in your life where there are all the paths in front of you. None of them are wrong. You know, they're all just paths and experiences. And, and I think it's, you know, it's such a, incredible opportunity to try different things and do different things. So I've, you know, I've, I've worked as a firefighter. I worked for the Olympics. Um, I've worked as a PA. I've worked now as a professor. Um, I've done a lot of different things and each one of them has been a really incredible opportunity. And so um, as opportunities present themselves, I don't, I don't ever discount an opportunity. I always want to look at it and make sure that I'm not just passing something by without being thoughtful. So um, but none of those paths were wrong. I think I could have gone any way and I would have had a different set of experiences, but I still would have enjoyed them. The enjoyment though is the important thing. And I think with my kids and as I talk to people in my career now that are considering going into medicine or other fields, I, I just say, look, you know, money is only as important as it can provide for your, you and your family. You don't need, uh, you shouldn't consider the money as the important thing as long as you're able to make a living. But the most important thing is you need to pick something that you're passionate about and that you enjoy doing. And then work is not work. Work becomes fun. Work becomes, you know, this, this lifestyle. So um, that's, you know, and I know people that don't necessarily agree with me on that, but I, I'm pretty, for me, that's what works. Find something you enjoy, find something you're passionate about. And my kids always joke, you know, if you want to be a garbage man, just be the best garbage man there is. You know, it's okay. Whatever you choose to do, just do well at it and you'll, you'll, you'll be happy and you'll excel. And I think the other, um, the other piece of wisdom, I've heard it in a number of different venues, a similar thought. The most recent one was uh, from a quote from Robin Williams. Um, but, the, you know, in the, the movie, I think it's called Wonder. At the end of the movie about this, this boy, um, who's been through some pretty awful things. He, he stands up in front of his school and says, be kind. We're all, we are all fighting a hard battle. And I think that to me, I think about that all the time that we don't know. We don't know what other people are going through, but we all should be assuming that just like me, the person next to me is fighting a hard battle to do what they need to do, to be happy, to succeed, to, to, you know, to get through all the things we're getting through. And so if we, we have that thought process and we, we just operate with kindness and all that we do, it makes the world a better place. Maybe a little sappy, but I love that sentiment. Well, I'm with you 100% on the sentiment. The, that's kind of my wife's number one rule is be kind. And so I appreciate you bringing that up. And I really like this idea that that none of the paths are necessarily wrong. Um, they're just different paths and they may take us to different experiences. When it comes to enjoying what you're doing, I think it's paramount, at least for me. And I appreciate you bringing that up. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. So sometimes people conflate, oh, doing something that I love with it being easy. But 
oftentimes doing the thing that you love to do it well, you have to work hard in order to achieve the outcome you desire. So I think those are all excellent pieces of advice. Mark, I really appreciate you sharing those with us. Now, if our listeners want to learn more about the work that you're currently doing there at UVU or Huntsman Cancer, or they just want to swap Salt Lake 2002 stories, what's the best way for them to contact you through social media or other channels? Yeah, I've got, um, I probably use, I have a love-hate relationship like the rest of us with Facebook. I don't like Facebook, but I have to use it. I really like LinkedIn. I'd say, you know, that's, I I really appreciate LinkedIn because you don't get as much of the other stuff that you don't want on LinkedIn. Um, So that'd probably be the best one just to to jump on LinkedIn and you can find me there. All right, LinkedIn it is. I'm with you. And I appreciate you taking the time, carving out an hour of your day to share your Salt Lake 2002 stories. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Again, Mark, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.